Welcome to the tape ministry of Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, whose mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. It is our desire that the tapes of these services and messages from God's Word will touch lives deeply and encourage a closer walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you wish to contact the church for any reason, please phone us at 253-851-7779 or write us at Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, Post Office Box 829, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. At the end of the first section of the recording, please turn the tape over to hear the rest of the service. Now may God richly bless you as you join the people of Chapel Hill in worshiping the Lord and listening to the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, this has been a long week. You know, I used to eat these 75-hour tech weeks for breakfast. I think I'm getting older because I am pooped. Looking forward to going home to my blue chair. But God's Word awaits us this morning, and so we'll pray that the Holy Spirit will give us all a little more energy to preach and to receive what He has to say to us today. As most of you know, I did youth ministry in Bakersfield, California for nine years. And one Saturday, one of the families of one of our youths invited us to come out to their place for a picnic. They had a little ranch, a few acres. They had a corral and a barn and one little mare. And growing up as I did on a few acres myself with a nag of a horse named Monty, I thought I would show these city kids a thing or two about horses. So <clears throat> I went into the barn and found the tack and began to saddle the horse. And I let her out, got on, and trotted her out of the corral. And then once we were into the field, I kicked her into a gallop. And we hadn't gone more than 30 yards when suddenly the cinch strap, which I had improperly tied, slipped. And the saddle whipped around the horse's belly, and I went flying into the pasture while the mare galloped off into the sunset, the saddle hanging from beneath her. And I don't know what hurt more, my hip, which was sore for weeks, or my ego from having all of my kids see me make a, a fool out of myself. I wanted to be a, a hero for them on that horse, and what they got was something entirely else. 2,000 years ago, the Jews were awaiting a conquering hero on a horse, a Messiah who would deliver them from Roman oppression. And on that first Palm Sunday, instead, they got something entirely different. Ah, but when we turn to this morning's text, now this is more like it. Turn with me to Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now speak to us, O God, through your word. Make it our word. Make it what we need to receive this day to be faithful followers of yours. May we see the powerful Christ this day. In Christ's name, amen. I have been to Israel five times, and one of the obligatory stops every time you go to Israel, when you get into Jerusalem, is you make your way up to the east side of the old city onto a hillside there called the Mount of Olives. We've heard it many times referred to, but it is a must-see place. You get to the top there and you look out over the city below you, down at the base of the mountain, of that hill really is what it is, you see the Garden of Gethsemane. And then there's a valley in between called the Valley of Kidron, Kidron Valley. And then up the other hillside and you look and you see the walls of the old city and, and the part that is closest to you is the Temple Mount. It is really a glorious sight and it is not difficult at all to sit there, close your eyes and imagine what it must have been like for Jesus who 2,000 years ago spent a great deal of time on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And on one day particularly, of course, we remember the Mount of Olives for it is there that he began this trek into the city which we call Palm Sunday, which we commemorate on Palm Sunday. As a matter of fact, we pilgrims, will start from the top and each time we walk down what is a long and windy and steep road uh, recreating that journey which Jesus took. And it has not become so modernized that it is difficult for us to imagine what it must have been like 2,000 years ago when the crowds of people gathered there and welcomed the coming of their Lord, their Messiah. You heard Kesley read it earlier on in our text. Jesus sent two of his disciples into the city to get a donkey, to fetch this donkey for him. And they did so, and when they found the donkey, they congregated at the top of the Mount of Olives, and the rest of the disciples took their coats off, and they placed them on the back of that donkey to make a saddle. And if you've ever seen the way that a spine protrudes from the the back of a third world donkey, you would understand why such padding would be necessary to make the trip. And as Jesus rode down the side of the Mount of Olives on this mount, crowds gathered, and they began to cut branches. We are never told that they are palm branches. That is our assumption. Palm Sunday is our invention on the basis of what we assume was growing there at the time. But they cut branches and they laid them down on the street in front of Jesus and they took their own garments off uh, 1,500 years before Sir Walter Raleigh even thought of the idea and laid that down on the ground too. And the donkey upon which Jesus was riding stepped across this highway of greenery and cloth as he made his way down into the city. And the crowds that began to gather there as they saw this procession taking place cried out, Hosanna, which means save. Did you know that? Hosanna, it means save. Save. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There are two times prior to the resurrection of Jesus when we have an opportunity to catch a glimpse of Jesus in his glory, in his, in his pre-incarnate glory, in his glory that we, we assume will come again after his time on this earth. Now, one of those moments took place on another mountainside, only a few days before what we see taking place here. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration, and you remember the story, don't you? Jesus took Peter and James and John, and they went up onto the top of the mountain. And while they were there, they had this vision of Jesus. Jesus began to change. He was transfigured. His, his entire mien, his bearing, his demeanor, his countenance became white hot, brilliantly white. And he was joined on that mountaintop by Elijah, the giver, the prophet, and, and by Moses, the, the lawgiver. And in that moment, his disciples caught a glimpse of what Jesus must have left behind. 
when he removed himself from the presence, the eternal presence that he enjoyed with his heavenly Father before his incarnation to come and be with us. That is one of the glory moments. A second glory moment comes in today's text. For in the story of Palm Sunday, we see Jesus allowing the people to do that which he had been reluctant to allow for his entire ministry, and that is to receive the accolades of the people. Ordinarily, think back to our series through the Gospel of Mark. Anytime Jesus did an extraordinary miracle, a healing, a, a casting out of demons, what was the first thing that he said when he was done with the healing? Be quiet about it. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone what you have seen. And of course, typically in good fashion, everyone disobeyed him and went and told everyone they could find. But Jesus wasn't ready for that. He didn't want them to pronounce him to be the Messiah. He knew that he couldn't get about the work that he had before him yet if he was crowded, pressed in upon by these people who wanted to meet this Messiah. And so his, his ministry-long mantra was, don't tell anybody what I have done for you. But here finally on this Palm Sunday, Jesus, as he approaches the end of his ministry on this earth. He allows the crowds to acknowledge him for who he is, their Messiah, their King. The only thing is, this wasn't quite the image that they had in mind. True enough, Zechariah, when he wrote about it, foretold a time when their King of Zion would come to them humble and gentle and riding on a donkey. Certainly that was there in their Old Testament. But there was a, there was a, a, a stronger and more impressive tradition that had persisted through hundreds of hundreds of years. And that tradition said that the Messiah would come not on a donkey, but on a war horse, on a great white charger. And frankly, if you had been there that day, that first Palm Sunday, you may have thought a lot of things, but the first thought that would have jumped to your mind probably would not have been, look, here comes the conquering soldier. The Jews were expecting Roy Rogers on trigger. They were expecting the Lone Rangers on silver. And what they got was a rabbi on a donkey named Pedro. Now, we aren't certain the donkey was named Pedro, but there's a strong tradition that suggests. (laughs) But when you turn to this morning's text, you can't help but say, ah, now this is more like it. This is a mode of transport appropriate for a messiah. This is what it should be. This is what we are expecting. This glorious image of a conquering hero on a white horse. And he's leading a phalanx of white horses that are being ridden by heavenly hosts that are dressed in white garments, linen, clean, pure. This is what we thought it should be look, look like. And the battle has not yet been fought. It will be joined in a few verses. But for now, we know that the battle's already been won. We are looking in the face of the victor. And I want to take a moment this morning and look at the various ways in which this victorious rider is described. And then I hope to come back and wrap it up into a nice little Palm Sunday package for you at the end of the, of the sermon. First of all, we find that he is described as one whose eyes are blazing like fire. Does that sound familiar to you? It should, because in the very first vision that John had in chapter 1, remember? He said, I saw someone that was like a son of man. And one of the ways to describe this son of man vision was, he said, his eyes were blazing like coals, like fire. So we come back, there's a juxtaposition of that chapter 1 upon this uh, picture of the rider on the white horse. For he too has these piercing eyes that are ablaze. What does this mean? What it means is this rider, this judge, this just judge, there is nothing that is hidden from his eyes. There are no surprises. 
His vision pierces through the phoniness and the subterfuge and the religiosity of all to whom he turns his gaze. We may think we are faking one another out. We may even be faking ourselves out. But when the rider on this horse looks at us, he looks past what he sees and into our souls and he knows the truth, the whole truth, and so much more than nothing but the truth. I once worked with a pastor named Rick Irish. He had eyes like this. They were about this big. And he looked straight into you and you sat down to talk to him. And I'm usually pretty good at keeping eye contact with someone with whom I'm discussing things, but... He wore me out. It was like chicken, I chicken, and I always lost. I mean, pretty soon I had to avert my gaze because I knew he was just burrowing into my soul and finding stuff out that I didn't want him to know. It was very unnerving. We don't like that. And if that was anything, wait, imagine bearing up under the scrutiny of the piercing, ablaze gaze of the rider on the white horse, Jesus himself. He knows the truth. He sees it all. What else do we know about this rider? It says that he is crowned with many crowns. Crown him with many crowns. We we sing it all the time. Well, here is the text. The rider sits there, and and they aren't numbered for us, but there are many crowns that are on his head. Now, when we try to imagine what this would look like, it's hard not to think it must have looked rather ungainly. Here is this one man on this one horse, and he, he looks like a Chinese acrobat with all of these crowns balanced upon his head. Why many crowns? Well, remember, crowns are a sign of authority. They're a sign of power. They are a sign of dominion. And is this the first time the image of crowns have come to us in this book? Not at all. Again and again, we have seen this. Remember? Remember when the dragon appeared? How many heads did the dragon have? Seven heads. And on each of those heads was a crown. And then he was one-upped by his assistant who rose up out of the sea. Remember the sea beast? He arises. He has seven heads, but he has ten horns. And for him, the ten horns each have a crown. So you have seven crowns, ten crowns, all of them having power which they have imputed to themselves, which they have taken for themselves. And it is as if, as we approach the finale of the story of, of Revelation... It is as if the rider of this horse is saying, you may have some crowns, but I have many crowns. I have all authority. I have more authority than you will ever have. His power is unmatched. What else do we see when we look at this rider? What do we see about his garment? What is the color of the garment? Well, it is white, but but there's something unusual about it, for it, it has been dipped in blood. You see that? Many commentators believe this to be the blood of his enemies. Now, this isn't the kind of uh, God that we like to imagine. We prefer a God that's something like a big, friendly social worker. But in fact, this is the way God works out. In the end, God will judge. And Isaiah 63 looks ahead to a time when God tramps in the winepress of his wrath and, and the blood of the enemies, the wine becomes blood. So there is imagery in the Old Testament that we could allude to here. But there's the thing. When we're looking at this text, the battle hasn't taken place yet. The, the, the rider on the white horse and his phalanx of, of, uh, of followers, they are gathered, they are arrayed, they are ready for battle, but it does not come until verse 19. And so I pose the question, if the battle hasn't taken place yet, how can it be the blood of his enemies? And if it is not the blood of his enemies that stains his robe, whose blood is it? His own. I believe that's the heart of this. It is the blood. It is his own blood. Think back to chapter 5. Remember when John had the vision of the Lamb of God and no one was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll of human destiny? Remember that? And suddenly it is the Lamb of God who appears. 
And why is the Lamb of God deemed worthy to break the seals? Because He is the one who is slain. He is the one who has shed His blood, and by His blood the world has been redeemed. Those who would respond to Him. In fact, the elders who sing praises to that Lamb of God sing these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God and from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now there is no question at all that when we look at this image of this rider on the white horse that we are looking at Jesus preparing for warfare, preparing for victory. He is about to engage in the battle of all battles, the battle for the ages in which he will ultimately defeat all of his enemies. But the blood he bears on his garments as he rides into battle is not yet the blood of his enemies. It is his own shed blood. It is his not-so-secret weapon. For in fact, even though the battle has not yet been fought, the victory has already been won. For it is won not on that battlefield, the victory was won on that cross. The victory was won in Gethsemane when Jesus said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And he walked to the cross and experienced separation from his Father and took upon himself the sins of humankind. The battle has already been won. And as Jesus rides then into that final battlefield against his stubborn and evil enemies, his garment stained with his own blood is an obvious and painful reminder that they are doomed. They are done for. With what, battle, with what weapon does he fight? A sword. A sharp sword proceeding from his mouth. Now there's an image. Again, not the first time we've seen that. We saw it back in chapter 1. Same son of, God image, son of man imagery. Again, the sword proceeding from his mouth. What is the weapon that Jesus will use to bring judgment to the earth? Now I want you to think about this carefully. Is it literally going to be a sword that proceeds from his mouth and he's going to slay his victims in this fashion? What? What is living and sharper and active? Living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword? What is it? The Word of God. How is it that God brought all things into being? How did He create all things? By His Word. He spoke them into existence. When Jesus healed, how did He usually do it? By His Word. He spoke it. When Jesus cast out demons, how did He do it? He spoke it by His Word. When Jesus raised Lazarus up, how did He do it? He spoke it by His Word. When the, when the soldiers approached Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, how were they bowled over? How were they knocked over? By the power of Peter's assault? His misaimed sword that cut off the ear of someone instead of his head? Nice job, Peter. No, that's not how he did it. He bowled them over by the power of his word. I want you to realize what is being said here. When Jesus returns, he is not going to have a literal sword sticking out of his mouth. He won't need it. For his words will be all the weapon he needs. The dragon hasn't a chance. For the dragon is, is a part of creation. He was a, an angel before he fell. Satan was a beautiful angel. A, a creation of God. And just as surely as God created all things by his word, so shall he slay him by his word. The sea beast, the land beast, they haven't a chance. Jesus will slay them with his word. All that is rebellion, all that is against the Lord will one day fall, and they will do so by the piercing power of the speech of the word of Christ. There's a good bit of this text that is given over to the names of the writer. Did you notice that? It is mentioned four times. I want to look at those. First of all, he is called faithful and true. And we might have our own ideas about what faithfulness and truth might mean. 
But typically when the Bible talks about it, it means a couple of things, nuances of each other. When the Bible talks about God being faithful and true, what it promises is that he is the one who keeps his covenant. He keeps his promise. He will do what he has promised that he will do. And a nuance of that is he is the real thing. He is the genuine article. He is the real McCoy. You can count on him. You can trust in him. You can bet your life on him. Now, why would the first words to describe, the first name to describe this glorious appearance of the victorious rider, why would they be faithful and true? Well, think back for a moment yet again. Is this the first time that we've seen a rider on a white horse appear in this book? No. Remember the breaking of the seals. The first four seals were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the first one that came out, the very first one out, was a rider on the white horse. A a rider on the white horse. Some commentators see that as Jesus. I don't. I think that's a counterfeit. There are many parts of the image that seem similar, but look more carefully. The first horseman of the apocalypse, how many crowns does he have? He has one. How many crowns does Jesus wear on this horse? Many. The first horseman, he carries a bow as his weapon. But Jesus' weapon is the very word that proceeds from his mouth like a sword. The first horseman is described as bent on conquest. Is this horseman bent on conquest? No. He's not bent on anything. He's already won the victory. The battle is already his. He doesn't have to be bent on anything. The first horseman is a counterfeit. He cannot be trusted. He is not reliable. He is not faithful. He is not true. He is not real. This text promises that here is the one who is real. Here is the one who will keep his promise. Here is the one who will take care of us. And I just need to add a parenthetical remark that I don't have written here, but as I look out across and think this morning, I suspect this is a word that all of us need, or at least most of us need. Suffice it to say that we have taken something of a bloodbath this last week in the stock market, haven't we? And we look at our retirements, our savings, and suddenly they're dropping by a precipitous amount And it is very hard for us not to become concerned because, in fact, this represents our future. It represents our hard work. It represents our livelihood. It represents the hopes for the future. And when we see a quarter of our net worth sliced away in in the action of one week, it is very easy for us to become anxious and worry about what the future might hold because that seems real to us. Let this text remind us once again of what is real, what is faithful. For this stock market is certainly not it. Your future does not depend upon what Janet Reno might do or what Greenspan might say. Your future depends upon him who is faithful and true. He is the real thing. This other stuff is counterfeit. And when we forget that, we need to repent of it and return to the Lord who will always take care of us. The writer is also called the Word of God, verse 13. Now, what does that remind you of? Think back. There's a gospel that starts similarly. In fact, it was written by a guy named John. In fact, I believe it was written by the same guy. And the first part of that gospel of John goes like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was 
with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without, any, without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and that life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John has already introduced us to this logos. That's the Greek word for word. He has already introduced us to this eternal logos, this eternal word of God. In that great text, we are introduced to the one who was not a creation of God the Father, but in fact the pre-existent logos before all of creation, who has lived eternally with the Father. When he came to earth, he took a break from being with the Father to be with us. But he has always existed. He has never been created. In fact, all that has been created was created by and through the Logos, the Word of God. And suddenly this little word jumps out at us. And it doesn't, we, don't, uh, we don't see it that way immediately because the word in the Greek isn't there. But that's what it is in Greek. When we turn to the Greek text, here is the Logos of God, the eternal Logos of God. The one who spoke all into existence. The one who has existed from the beginning and will exist to the end of all time. We are also told, and apparently the text didn't make it into your bulletin, but in the last part of verse 12, that there's another name written on him. And notice how often we're seeing now these names, these symbols that are written on people. I mean, the lines are being drawn. Whose number, whose name will you have written on you? And this writer has a name written on him and we are told... That no one knows but he himself. No one knows his name but he himself. The meaning of it. You would be amazed at how many commentators then proceed to speculate on what that name is. And I think, are you reading the text? This is pointless speculation. It says, no one knows but he himself. Do you think he himself except for you? What does this say to us? It says to us that the very Jesus, the very incarnate one, the one who left God, became flesh, left the Father, became flesh to be among us, with us, hang with us. There are still secrets about him, still mysteries about him that we do not know. We will never know. As much as he is revealed of himself, there is much yet more that we will never understand. We will never plumb the depths of Jesus. Dale Bruner says, we never graduate from the school of Jesus. There's also something worth noting that, and that is this. At this time, it was believed that if you knew the name of someone, you had power over them. You had authority over them. Well, in essence, Jesus is saying here, listen, there ain't nobody going to control me. I am who I am. I am the Logos, the eternal word of God, and no one will know all that there is to know about me, and certainly no one is going to be controlling me. And finally, there's this other word. It was written on his robe. It says on his thigh and on his robe. Maybe we should understand it to me. And when a rider on a horse rides, the, the part that's most visible is his thigh. And so a robe draped over his thigh would be most visible. So that most visible name of all of the four is written right here for the world to see. And what is the name that we find there? King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the text that came out of Handel's Messiah that we are so famous, it's so famous. Here's where it came from. In this most visible way, this writer makes a claim that no one has ever nor can ever make. And that there may be other kings, but he is the big K king of little K kings. There may be other lords, but he is the big L lord of little L lords. Jesse Ventura, that great theologian of the Midwest...
once said that he likes being king because there is no one over him. Well, Jesse, you're wrong. There's someone over you. Powerful rulers around the world may not believe in Jesus. They may not believe in God. They may not believe that there will come a time of reckoning. But it makes no difference whether they believe it or not. For it is so. There is a king of kings. There is a lord of lords. Presidents and prime ministers, kings and queens, potentates and dictators, tyrants and tribal chiefs. They may have power, they may have status, they may have authority for a time, but whether or not they acknowledge him, there is another. One who wears many crowns, who is above all of them. And the scriptures say that one day, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I had to juggle our text this morning in order to have this reading for this day. And we'll come back to the text we left behind in weeks to come. But I wanted to use this reading for Palm Sunday because the two glimpses that we have of Jesus this morning pose an important question to every listener. We have an image of Jesus on the donkey. And we have the image of Jesus on a white war horse. And my question to you, my friends, is this. Which rider do you wish to meet? The Jesus of Palm Sunday and the Jesus of Revelation 19 stand in stark contrast to each other. Which one do you wish to meet? For if there is any clear truth that comes out of our study of Revelation, it is this. One day, God's patience will be spent. One day, God will return in Jesus Christ to finally and forever destroy all that is evil upon this world. And those who wish to be counted among the faithful followers of the Lamb will see this Jesus in one way. And those who wish to live in rebellion against God will certainly see him in quite another. So I ask again, which Jesus do you wish to meet? Which rider do you wish to meet? Is it the Jesus who rides on the donkey? Or the Jesus who rides on the war horse? Is it the Jesus whose eyes brim with tears as he weeps over Jerusalem and the people? Or is it the Jesus whose eyes are ablaze with fire? Is it the Jesus whose head is crowned with thorns? Or the Jesus whose head is crowned with many crowns? Is it the Jesus who refrains from calling out for help to the angels while he hangs from the cross? Or is it the Jesus who is followed by an army of heavenly hosts? Is it the Jesus who had a spear driven into his side? Or the Jesus from whose mouth proceeds a, a sword that will strike down the nations? Is it the Jesus who walked the way of sorrows, the Via Dolorosa? Or is it the Jesus who has trod the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God? Is it the Jesus whose name is written on a sign and spiked above his head upon a, bl a bloody cross? Or is it the Jesus whose name is written on his robe and on his thigh? A name which says, here is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, he was a king coming in peace. He was a king coming to lay down his life for his subjects. That day is past. When Jesus comes again, he will not be mounted on a donkey. He will be seated on a horse of war. And he will bring the righteous judgment that has been so long delayed. My friends, you will meet one rider or the other.
Which writer would you care to meet? I'll let you reflect on that as the ushers come forward and we sing to God's praise the doxology. Let us stand as we sing. Blessings flow, praise Him all creatures here below, praise Him above ye heavenly host, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Lord Christ, we have two glimpses of you today. A glimpse of you coming to us humble, gentle, riding on a donkey, ready to lay down your life for us. And the glimpse of you when you shall come again, this time, to finally and forever bring into submission this creation, this rebellious creation of yours. Lord, we pray that we would know the Jesus on the donkey and that we would follow the Jesus on the war horse. In light of this week, Lord, the money that we are about to give costs us more. May we offer it up as a sacrifice of faith, trusting that you are faithful and true, that you will care for us, that you will meet all of our needs according to your riches in Christ Jesus, the only one who is faithful and true. Bless both gift and giver now, but we pray it through Christ. Amen.
Following this service and every service, there will be a group of people who are ready to pray with you. If God has touched your heart in some way today, if you have come to the conclusion as you are listening that you're not sure which rider you would meet, then take care of that business today before you leave this place. And now receive the wonderful blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all of God's great people said,